some changes let's change the way we eat let's change the way we live and let's change the way we treat each other you see the old way wasn't working so it's on uh, us yes thank you to. tupac and kid cuddy this is zach yansko welcome back to the vigor revolution podcast super excited to be bringing you this topic today we recorded our overview of nutrition principles earlier this week and now we get to actually dive into my latest experiment. Um, I like to refer to myself as a vigorvore because <laughs> you know you got to make up words nowadays. It's all about branding. So vigorvore is my term for how I eat, which basically just means that I eat for optimal health and strength, and then uh, body composition as well. And that was the um, topic of the first podcast on nutrition, which we laid out the groundwork for carbs, fats, personalized nutrition how things are going to probably vary from person to person, how to start playing with your ratios, maybe do a reset diet like a ketogenic plan or a paleo plan. And that leads me into today's topic of the, carniv the carnivore diet, a.k.a. the all-meat diet, and how I came to this one. So basically, when I started my personal journey down this path, I was very overweight, borderline depressed. I was on five or six, I believe, I'll say five safely because I don't want to be accused of lying. So I was on five medications, possibly six, I forget. It was a long time ago. It was 12 years ago. And sleeping about 14 hours a day, in and out of college, chronic depression, that was the medications I had been diagnosed as being depressed, which was a no-brainer. When I didn't respond to the antidepressants, my doctor, who, you know, I put nothing against him. He's a great internal medicine specialist, and he's well-versed in what he knew how to do at the time. Um, he slowly started to try, we tested different cocktails to try to address both the um, the manic, the, the mania I was feeling and the depression that I was feeling. So I eventually w received a label of bipolar just because I wasn't responding to the medications as he had hoped. So that's an... Um, when people talk about being bi bipolar, being depressed, having manic problems, requiring medication, I have a lot of compassion for that situation since I've been through that. I also have some pretty strong opinions about it. Medication is a great tool. Yes, we are very blessed to have the ability to alter brain chemicals in that way. On the other hand, we also have to remember that we have a lot of other tools at our disposal as well. I don't believe in a pill for every ill philosophy. I don't think that it's been shown to really optimize our health. <clears throat> I think when we start managing symptoms and conditions, then other ones pop up. And that's really why I focus so much on how I eat, how much I move, and just cultivating the best lifestyle I can, including changing my mindset. All those things will factor in. So, after having gone through the standard uh, bodybuilding type approach, which I started trying in my early 20s when I was doing programs like Body for Life, which is basically eating five to six times a day, you eat um, according to the guidelines like I presented yesterday where you're doing a hand-sized serving of protein, fist-sized serving of starch, some 
a vegetable at each meal, a green vegetable, a cheat day each week, <laughs> which for me was always a uh, one to two cheat days, depending on what else, what other challenges and stressors were going on that week and how well I could get back on track. So I never found balance from that program. I eventually, when I got to be borderline obese and I was chronically depressed, I started to, um, well, it was the real, the whole story leading up to it is I was driving down the freeway. I remember very, uh, very distinctly. I was driving, going 395 North about to get on I-80 West. Doesn't mean anything to you if you're not from Reno, but most of my people who listen locally as this time, so they'll understand, get a good vivid image of this. And I was on the phone with my doctor and yes, you you could still make cell phone calls at that period of time. So, <laughs> um, and I was on hold and I was calling because I was having a serious time with my thinking. I just noticed that my thinking felt very slow and I felt very out of touch with reality. I felt very surreal and just very almost, you know, like a zombie. And I was on hold and, um, and one of the, one of the assistants or one of the front desk people, I forget now, was trying to um, determine or find my blood, or my lithium blood level, because that's what I was calling. I was calling to check in to see the results of my blood work. She got back on the phone with me and she said, well, I can't find it right now, but I know the doctor wants to increase your dosage uh, next time you come in. So I said, okay, um, I'll call back and schedule. And I hung up and I just remember being so furious and I, I wasn't blaming him, but I was just, upset at how I felt. I was upset not being able to think. I was tired of being just overburdened with emotions I didn't know how to handle. Just tired of feeling nothing some days. Tired of sleeping all the time. Just dragging myself through life. So I did something that day that I actually don't recommend other people do. I quit all the meds cold turkey. I took some pretty extreme measures, what I consider extreme now at the time. They made sense to me, but I did... Um, if you've heard of the master cleanse which is, or the lemonade cleanse where you basically make homemade lemonade every day with lemons and uh, cayenne pepper and uh, there's another ingredient wow it was a while ago now anyways I did that and I ended up staying on that plan for about 28 days and I ended up weighing a lot less I was almost 250 when I started it and I dropped probably I want to say 25 pounds about almost a pound a day and I think I got away with it because I was still in my early to mid 20s I was about 25 at the time and and I say get away with it because I remember I went back you know using fasting successfully one time I ended up trying it again I believe um, I'm think now. jeez this all feels like so long ago I tried it again three to four years later and about six days in, I tore um, a lap muscle in my back. It was a very serious injury. It took me probably six to eight months to get over and to be able to do things like pull-ups again. I was training very hard while I was um, fasting. Again, I got away with it when I was younger and I could repair better and I had more weight on. But fasting, while it can be a good tool, it's really, I mean, I know people who do it now for religious reasons and so I understand that because it changes the mindset. As far as health reasons go, you're going to end up losing some muscle and you're going to possibly create a situation like I created. So after that, I kept trying kind of the normal approach, 
with varying levels of success given how the other stressors in my life played out eventually I came across Paul Check's work and then Rob Wolf with the paleo solution I started trying to do paleo for several years with again varying levels of success started to, uh, to get more strict with it and then a few years ago I started to experiment with uh, lower carbohydrate diets and I felt really terrible so I kind of wrote those off I went back to more of a paleo based solution because I knew at this time anytime I drank milk or dairy um, I'd get stuffy and congested I knew if I ate grains I would bloat and gain like five to six pounds overnight just from the water retention I believe and the other processes um, that those substances affected my gut so it took me a long time to get this dialed in Last year, I actually did re revisit low-carbohydrate dieting. Um, I committed to trying the ketogenic diet, and I've had really good success with that. I've um, consistently been lighter um, without losing strength, or and I also felt better mentally and emotionally on it. And so I've been doing that for about the last year, and then I started seeing all this stuff about the carnivorous diet pop up, especially the work of Dr. Sean Baker, and that has led me down this path and so I jumped into this a few weeks ago after listening to Dr. Baker reveals blood results work on the Rob Wolf podcast and I'll link to that be, um, in my blog because it's very important that we get you know some good measures one of the reasons that I'm very attracted to the diet and experimenting with it right now as I know other coaches who are using it and Sean Baker himself his physical performance has increased um, very competitive athlete in his, in his 50s now and other people who are adopting this way of eating are also seeing physical increases in performance and that to me is very important because like I said in the last podcast we live in an era right now where people are going to make all sorts of claims and we really have to not only look at what they're saying their subjective experiences but we need some objectivity to really see if what they're claiming is the healthiest thing to do is really healthy so when people start releasing things like lab results when people start showing increases in performance when people start increasing their you know efficiency and their mood is better those are things that are all we all have to take into account it's not just about being lighter or losing fat it's about optimizing optimization okay so the carnivorous diet aka the meat only diet and I'm gonna go through the objections that um, I had because I recall seeing a blog post on this years ago I thought it was a Tim Ferriss blog post and I've been trying to look it up I've been trying to search for it and I can't come across it but the headline was basically like the man who's eaten nothing but meat for three years and I recall my exact thought was like um, something to the effect of wow what an idiot or you know what an asshole something like that or just you know well that will I guess somebody can get away with that or people are crazy all these thoughts are in my head I just dismissed it immediately because it's so far removed from the nutrition paradigm that I've been studying for a long time in college and on my own about getting all these micronutrients and all these substances from plants and you need these things from starches and you need these things from protein and you need a little bit of fat. So all of a sudden this, seeing this was, you know, I was like, wow, that person's really out there and I hope they don't hurt themselves. And I think that when people first hear about it, because we've all been hearing the same information, 
We hear all these properties about vegetables and fruits that we need. So all of a sudden to suggest that all that is removed is, I think most people will say is insane. People have similar objections to the ketogenic diet when you start talking about high fat, particularly high saturated fat and low to no carbohydrates. Well, is that true? That's the real question. So first I want to talk about the RDA. The RDA stands for Recommended Daily uh, Dietary Allowances. And they were enacted in 1941. The first edition was published in 1943. And it said the goal was to provide standards to serve as a goal for good nutrition. And it was intended to reflect the best scientific judgment for the maintenance of good health and to serve as a basis for evaluating the adequacy diets of groups of people. And then it's been, I think, um, when I was researching for this podcast, it says it's now in the 10th edition. So right away, we have our first objection to doing a carnivorous diet. And this has also been used against the ketogenic diet. Because when you look at the RDA, a lot of the micronutrient scores will indicate foods that you can't get enough of or it's, you have to really plan to get high doses of in order to meet the RDAs when you're doing a ketogenic diet or a carnivorous diet. But what I hadn't thought about, and I uh, know that I first heard about this listening to Sean Baker's work, is that the RDA was constructed by looking at population, our population, which is very heavily carbohydrate dependent. And when you start going into these micronutrients and asking, well, what does this micronutrient do? What does this one do? Turns out a lot of these micronutrients are involved in uh, glucose metabolism and other processes that would result from eating carbohydrates. So right now we really do not know how applicable that is for somebody who's following say like a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet or even a no carbohydrate zero carb aka carnivorous diet. Is it the same? And so far the answer seems to be no. It seems to be that yes, once you are using meats primarily or meat only, it seems to be that our, that RDA is going to be different. In the blog I wrote with this podcast, there's a link to um, somebody who I'd like to try to speak to soon. He created a RDA for carnivores, and he showed that you can get all the uh, micronutrients that are not required for carbohydrate eaters by eating a balanced diet of primarily red meat, some liver, things of that nature. Why should we be concerned about this micronutrients? Well... This brings us to a topic called um, oxida oxidation. Better have a sip of water, hold on. Okay. More attention has been going into the field of free radical chemistry. Free radicals are reactive oxygen species and reactive nitrogen species that are generated by our body internally in our systems when we're exposed to different uh, sorry, physiochemical conditions or pathological states. We need a balance between free radicals and then antioxidants to regulate our physiological function. Oxidative stress, if you've heard of that term, it's used in a lot of um, marketing for different supplements or to promote certain foods, particularly certain fruits and vegetables. Free radicals overwhelm the body's ability to regulate them, and then that's what creates oxidative stress. 
free radicals can adversely alter lipids, proteins, and DNA and trigger a number of human diseases. So in order to prevent this, our focus has been on looking at exogenous antioxidants. That means outside the body. Endogenous means inside. Exogenous is outside. So, okay, we have this oxidation process going on. How do we eliminate it? Well, we need to get antioxidants in. So what foods do we have these antioxidants that we need to get in? And then that's been the philosophy behind really pushing certain fruits and vegetables. But our body produces its own antioxidants from protein. And if you want to read more about this in my show notes, I have a link, and you can actually see the different endogenous antioxidants. So it seems that when people go on a low-carbohydrate or particularly are the carnivorous diet that we're talking about, these internal, these endogenous antioxidants get upregulated. We start producing more of them. They become more effective. Basically, are the processes that we need to combat oxidative stress under these conditions, the body will adapt over time. Thus, we do not need the exogenous external antioxidants in the diet. People like to point to vitamin C and say, well, there's no vitamin C in meat. A couple problems with that. There has been shown to be vitamin C in meat when they were establishing those values. They didn't test for it. This is part of a talk I'm going to link to in the end of this podcast here. Um, I pulled this from a, um, a doctor's webpage. When low levels of vitamin C are present, the body makes do by recycling the oxidized version of vitamin C. This redox cycling is performed by the master antioxidant glutathione. <laughs> I, could, I should have practiced these. As long as enough glutathione is present, there we go. The vitamin C redox cycle continues. In the 1970s, Dr. John uh, Ely, E-L-Y, discovered the glucose acerbate antagonism theory, GAA. Glucose and vitamin C have a very similar chemical makeup. This theory proposes that elevated glucose levels compete and effectively restrict vitamin C from entering cells. Both glucose and vitamin C depend upon the pancreatic hormone insulin and its signaling effects in order to get into cells. Okay, so why should we care about that? Well, if you look at foods, you know, a food that's very high in vitamin C, obviously, that everyone thinks of immediately, if I say vitamin C, you think of an orange. The problem is, is that, okay, we're getting that vitamin C, but we're also getting high levels of glucose in the bloodstream. So the higher vitamin C, let's say the orange contains 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C or whatever, a couple hundred. I don't have the chart in front of me right now. But since the blood glucose has increased so much, that increased glucose is going to prevent that vitamin C from being as effective entering the cells. So on a zero-carbohydrate carnivorous diet where we're not only recycling this vitamin C, our intake is far lower because it has nothing to compete with to go into the cells themselves. This information was so amazing that um, I've taken the slides and put it in my PDF, but I wanted to link the original author so everybody knows who came up with it. Um, it's taken from Ambo, Amber O'Hearn's Carnivorous Human Talk Keto Fest 2017. And I have the YouTube link. I have her Twitter handle and her two websites that she's with. And this, so we're going to talk not only about meat, but we're also going to talk about plants. Because to suggest eliminating plants, again, at first glance from everything that we've heard over the years probably sounds insane. So let's look at what's going on. 
This is the information. She's been um, on a carnivorous diet either for nine or ten years. Let's see, this was written in 2017. Yeah, so she's, I believe she started in 2009. So I believe it's about nine years. Only meats. There's a lot of people who have been doing the carnivorous diet for 10 years, some up to 20. I know there's some videos out there of a gentleman who was on it for 50 years. And there's thousands, if not tens of thousands of people following this way of eating that's been doing it for many years now. But we have no formalized studies, so this is something that I don't put my students on as of now. I do talk with them about it. Many of them are thriving on a ketogenic diet, so maybe it's something they decide to try in the future. But it should be noted that right now there's no formal studies out about the carnivorous diet comparing it to test these theories. But we have so much anecdotal evidence from people who are doing it that those of us who are trying it feel pretty convinced that it is feasible. Okay, so diving into Amber's lecture here. She looks at what we know from anthropology to try to explain what we should be eating for our optimal results and why the carnivorous diet makes sense. So the human brain is much larger than other primates and it requires a large amount of energy. However, basal metabolic rates, that's the metabolic rate of what you need calorically just to function on a daily basis before you're exercising, just maintaining body functions, moving around, etc., are not more than would be predicted for a primate with our body mass. Where do we get the extra energy required to fuel our brains and how could this have evolved? And then she says, by making another observation, we give up our intestines. Let's talk a little bit about herbivores. Herbivores are fueled mainly by fat. It's a big misnomer people have. This is something that I haven't really thought of in a while since nutrition class. Mammals cannot digest cellulose, a.k.a. fiber. Fiber is fermented by gut microbes, and that produces short-chain fatty acids. And the short-chain fatty acids are converted to ketones, glucose, saturated monosaturated fats. And then you have different types of fermenters in the animal kingdom. You have those who have uh, repeated processing that have multiple chamber stomachs, foregut fermenters like cattle and goats, hindgut fermenters like rabbits, rodents, horses. This, and she points out, this is our pre-human evolutionary heritage. This is an interesting actual equation for herbivore eating strategy. Eating copious, low-quality forage. You eat continuously, you process repeatedly. The dietary quality, and this is a formula that this came that these people came up with looking at primates. Plant structure parts plus plant reproductive parts plus animal prey. So then they're rating the nutrition quality based on this based on this ratio. S plus two R plus three point five A equals dietary quality and then they're ranking the higher quality nutrition. But how much fiber can a human ferment? One gram of fermentable carbohydrate equals about two calories of short-chain fatty acid. But even the ADA cautions against eating more than 20 to 35 grams of fiber due to the inability to process. You can have you know gastro gastrointestinal distress, cramping, diarrhea, gas, always that fun stuff. So maximum we have about 70 calories coming from that. So that's less than 
of what a lot of people need on a daily basis. But this is even over, over, um, over exemplified because it was extrapolated from a prior British study with 15 grams of fiber to reports of third world fiber intake. So it's actually never been tested whether that could that much could be absorbed and processed. They looked at this one study, they estimated, you know, based on that population compared to ours, they came up with this other number, which may not even be true at all. During the evolutionary period, we needed protein and energy and couldn't get it from fiber. The plants available at the time were too fibrous to meet our caloric needs. We didn't have these fruits with all these calories inside of them. They were too low in protein and they were too seasonal. Remember, part of this is through the Ice Age. However, we had animals available at the time, referred to as megafauna. They're now extinct, but they were much fattier than modern leaner game. High quality entails nutrient-dense. Animal source food is much more nutrient-dense than plants. It's a concept called bioavailability. And it's hard to find a well-known, well-respected um, nutrition researcher or author right now that won't talk about bioavailability. The bioavailability of micronutrients from animal-based foods and meat is far higher than from plants for the structural reasons that we're talking about. An example is iron is three times more bioavailable in animal products and meat. Zinc, the best source is animal products. So, and there's several other key ones here. Really, the argument that she makes is that the animal products, the meat, is not an optional component of the human diet. Just because something like spinach has high iron does not mean that we can absorb that iron the way we can absorb the iron from meat, based on what I just went through as far as the structure of the plants and how we can and cannot digest those. Amber goes in here, meat is nutrient sufficient. Okay, there isn't any vitamin or mineral we need that we cannot get from meat or animal products. And she too cites the vitamin C um, example. The RDAs of vitamin C are grossly inflated. 10 milligrams a day prevents scurvy. The rest is conjecture about antioxidant properties. So people who really push vitamin C are looking at it for that antioxidant role to stop oxidative stress. But we're seeing, as we already talked about, that the proteins can be converted into antioxidants internally. So low carbohydrate diets reduce, reduce the need for vitamin C. The USDA lists meat as having none when in fact it, they didn't measure it. A pound of beef is probably about 10 milligrams. So it is possible to get more than enough vitamin C from meat only. fiber that's the second really big part that people are going to object about fiber does at you know absolutely you know moves things along in your intestines and cleans it out but our digestion is not based on needing fiber it's peristaltic movement it's the contractions the wave contractions that are going to push the food through the intestines and the gut and then make them you know finally come out the other end <laughs> we don't need to go further than that right she talks an interesting perspective on this. So the belief in fiber, one indication that a belief is based on faith is that every time the prevailing argument that it must be true is shown to be false, a new one is found to replace it. 
So first there was the inflammatory bowel disease and they're finding fiber doesn't help that, often hinders it. The blood sugar, you know, regulating blood sugar, it's better, but that's not necessarily true. Some people have argued that fiber will feed the microbiome. Those resistant starches are needed for the microbiome to flourish. And that's, truthfully, that was my biggest reservation before this experiment. Because that's how I've always approached feeding gut bacteria was from resistant starch. Even if I was just supplementing with resistant starch from potato starch. But I was very concerned because I had gone through a process of restoring my gut bacteria and I was very concerned that in an all meat diet they wouldn't be able to eat and I didn't know what the outcome would be. But I knew, and there's been more research about this, that a lot of people are calling the gut the second brain. And it has a huge role in thinking and our emotions. And I've experienced that firsthand having to restore it from my depression days. So I was very, 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 I can't say that word enough, concerned about removing all these foods that I thought were necessary, or not even the foods, but even the potato starch, the resistant starches that I knew that were feeding the gut bacteria, I was very hesitant to do that. And I really took a leap of faith to actually attempt this. The microbiome is an active organ-like component of our bodies. There are fascinating correlations between diseases and bacterial strains on standard American diets, but evolution, any strain unlikely to stay without constant feeding, in quotation marks, unlikely to be needed for survival because we did have fasting periods. Food wasn't readily available, so obviously if something requires that you feed it every day or two, maybe that's absolutely not you know something that we need. There's been a lot of attack on antibiotics, and I've been in that category myself. Uh, she, and Amber here points out that there's sometimes spurious, cor spurious correlations, and she's seen research that it might the antibiotics sometimes are actually beneficial for autism, schizophrenia, and Alzheimer's. She notes germ-free mice live longer and have healthier metabolisms than wild. Probiotics may benefit by feeding strains that displace, in quotation marks, bad strains. Helping cope with the fiber in the plants, but that would be a circular situation in which if we're assisting those to break down the plants, then removing the plants, those ones won't be needed or not in the quantity. The ketogenic metabolism may supplant need for significant short-chain fatty acid production. What about modern hunter-gatherers? So she refers to this as post-energy apocalypse, which is the loss of those megafauna, those um, creatures, those animals that were high, very high in fat that we could hunt that would allow us to have food for a very long period of time. There's a great book that a lot of people refer to, and Amber here does too, The Weston Price nutrition and physical degeneration book. Weston Price was a, a dentist and he was concerned with what he was seeing in our population with tooth decay and other dental problems. He traveled the world and he explored mod or, um, the modern culture compared to the quote-unquote you know primitive cultures because their dental health was astronomical. He'd never seen anything like it in these native tribal populations. And this eventually led him to conclude a lot of the mainstream foods that we were eating, like white flour, white sugar, man-made processed foods at the time were causing these dental problems. Pasteurized dairy would be another one of those. Western Price showed that a variety of nutrition studies allowed us to thrive. All included animal products. 
During this post-energy apocalypse, we learned how to extract more fat from existing animals. We found substitute fats in nuts. We used fire to extract calories from tubers, potatoes, sweet potatoes, those types of things. And we used fermentation and other, practice to, and other practices to reduce toxins in grains and legumes. And this is a really huge point that you can look at the Weston Price Foundation and they have processes for how to process lentils, um, rice. Traditionally, these starches that people have been raving about as being so healthy went through a very high level processing system that these people came up with over, you know, however many hundreds or thousands of years. They were trying to remove certain substances to make this food more bioavailable and less harmful to us. And I think sometimes we dismiss that wisdom too fast because obviously we say, well, that's not scientific. You know, there was no science at the time per se, but if you have populations of people who have been around for thousands of years, probably the ones who are doing things a certain way, traditionally, there's probably a very good reason they've done that. Let's look at some modern carnivorous humans. If plants were a necessary variety of recent societies that ate plants but rarely would not have survived. People, the first one everyone talks about is the Inuit up in Alaska. Weston Price quotes, In his primitive state, he has provided an example of physical excellence and dental perfection such as seldom been excelled in any race in the past or present. We are deeply concerned to know the formula of his nutrition. There's Plains Indians, the Maasai, Mongolians, Gauchos. So the USDA guidelines may be wrong in more ways. You know, they've been wrong about saturated fat and cholesterol. Those are increasingly being exonerated. There's a lot of outrage from people who um, are in the circles that I follow that they're not changing the recommendations yet based on this evidence. And they're still promoting a low-fat diet as being heart-healthy. That's a huge problem right now because you have a lot of institutions that are existing promoting this high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. Very hard for these institutions, you know, especially when the financial incentives are involved. Or if you don't want to even be that cynical, it's just hard for people to change the way they're doing. There's a lot of liability. There's a lot of potential blowback. So in order to start accepting this research, it's really imperative that more and more people understand and find their best dietary approach to show that the high-carbohydrate, low-fat myth is wrong. Okay, what about recommendations for fruits and vegetables? Amber says that there's similar lack of evidence. She's gone through a lot of studies. And it's never actually really been tested, or if it was, it was not publishable, whether or not fruits and vegetables are providing any health benefit at all. All the studies showing benefit are based on epidemiology or other problems. The problems with epidemiological studies is, for example, let's say you do a group and you call them meat eaters. Well, most meat eaters in our culture are going to be getting their meat from, you know, fast food locations and restaurants, and that meat's not just coming by itself. So, for example, a common meat eater would be somebody eating burgers a lot each week. I eat a lot of burgers. My definition of burger just no longer includes a bun. Well, now, <laughs> and in the last couple of weeks now, it doesn't include anything but the burger. And if I really want to, uh, guess you call it a little treat or maybe a little different um, taste, I add a little bit of cheese to it, like an ounce or so. So these epidemiological studies have a lot of confounding variables. 
the studies that will be showing that you know vegans and vegetarians are using to promote their way of eating some of that can be boiled down to that they're not those diets are not the causative factor because in the end the rates of cancer and cardiovascular disease are very similar so people who are adopting those diets may be doing other things and they've actually there's a high correlation with percentage of vegans and vegetarians who do not drink do not smoke are more active so we really cannot say that this diet's doing this and this diet's doing this when we're when we're looking at things epidemiologically or we can draw only very uh, loose conclusions that have to be tested in a better manner and there is no study that I've seen or that you know Amber saw or anybody else I've been reading from that really tests the way that uh, meat would be consumed on a well-constructed ketogenic or a carnivorous diet and that's very critical given the still the myth about unsaturated fat being unhealthy and cholesterol being a problem there have been vegetable depletion studies um, trying to show the benefit like this example is trying to show the benefit of antioxidants from green tea so we removed other source from vegetables no lasting effect from green tea but removing flavonoids from plants improve markers of oxidation that's very interesting so we remove the plants the substance that we you know think is going to be providing the antioxidants and all of a sudden oxidation improved here's a quote the decrease in protein oxidation and the increased resistance of plasma lipoproteins to oxidation in the present study points to a more general relief of oxidative stress after depletion of flavonoid and ascorbate rich fruits and vegetables from the diet contrary to common beliefs that's pretty fascinating so why would we think about giving up plants what's the problem with the plant and often case and oftentimes they're delicious they look nice well plants are living things and there's a lot of research going on about how they behave for example they don't want to be eaten the plants may put out fruit they want to be eaten because if I'm a plant and I'm producing my fruit I have my seeds inside so I'm giving the animals something to help me spread and um, you know I'm totally blanking on words right now about my son was just calling for me <laughs> trying to multitask as a dad and uh, and uh, in the health person right now sorry anyways so the plants are putting out this fruit it wants the animal to eat it spreads the seeds is helping the plant to survive obviously it's carrying on the DNA of the plant so that's a very symbiotic relationship between plants and animals but plants themselves have chemical toxins so some examples alkaloids like in nightshades they can they're bitter they can alter carbon fat metabolism they can have impacts on DNA repair, nerve transmission, um, cyanogenic glycosides. The example she gives is tapioca. Activated on the bite, they release, for example, cyanide. They block cellular respiration. Terpenoids, like in citrus. Volatile oils related to turpentine, very toxic. Phenolics, like in tea, flavonoids, tannins, lignans cannabinoids 
bind to proteins inhibiting digestion and absorption. So these things have actually been isolated. Some of these things have been isolated and concentrated for pharmacological use in drugs. Typically requires doses not obtainable by grazing. So there are some serious side effects for some people that can arise from eating plant materials. That's why raw diets make absolutely no sense. If you are going to eat plants, that's great. If that makes, and you know, test, if that makes you feel better, that's fantastic. Raw diets, so you're not getting rid of these plant defenses. When you're cooking the vegetables, you are getting rid of some. So it's far better to cook your vegetables. So if someone's advocating for raw vegetables, then I really don't think they've studied, you know, the structure of these plants and our digestive systems that would allow us or not allow us to digest them. So we are seeing that we don't need fiber. Our micronutrients needs are much different if we're on a diet that's not carbohydrate based and that plants are not these benign, you know, wonderful health giving things necessarily. So that's where I'm at right now. That's why I'm attempting this. I hope that makes sense. I hope it gives you something to think about. I don't really, the goal here is not to get other people to jump into carnivorous diet. Um, the goal is to start to think of things in a way that will go back to the topic in our previous podcast about nutrition to have a personalized, optimized approach to see what foods make you feel the best, what quantities, and how to prepare them. So please leave your comments below. I love all the feedback, even if you think this is full of shit and you don't agree with any of it. I'd like to hear that too. Because um, it's really important that we start having these conversations with, you know, so we start thinking about these personally, but then start reaching out and talking to others to help each of us find the path that's going to serve our best needs. Again, our goal here is to eat to live, to create the best life, to be the best family member, the best community member, the best parent, best spouse, the best entrepreneur, whatever your roles are, having the best diet and the best training approach for those goals is only going to make you perform far better. Hope everybody has a great day. Thanks for tuning in. And we will be back soon with another podcast. Check out our blog on this if you want more information. There's all the sources that I've used, including Amber O'Hearn's talk, are linked in that blog. It's got some great articles in there. Um, so, yeah, if you want to learn more about this or if you – there's even a a, a great blog from Marty um, Kendall at Optimizing Nutrition that I link – that looks at the pros and the cons of this approach and talks about, you know, the unproven nature of it like I have. It's a really amazing blog. It has Amber's talk within it actually and it has some other um, clips and some just some really awesome information about nutrients following this approach. And then lastly, if you are going to try a carnivorous diet, obviously get blood work done. Obviously, you know, be discussing this stuff with your healthcare provider, regardless of your dietary approach. Keep in mind, too, that doctors are not trained in nutrition and that all this information regarding ketogenic diets, carnivorous diets, approaches that seem very extreme that might be benefiting people, particularly with autoimmune situations, keep in mind that those are not being studied. So 
it's important to disseminate this information to healthcare providers so that they can start looking at this. In a lot of instances, they cannot recommend such an approach because of liability, you know, hospital rules, things of that nature. But there has been a lot of anecdotal successes and there are a lot of medical people that are starting to test ketogenic diets and even now the carnivorous diet. So there is a lot of benefit. We just got to get it to the right people, right tool at the right time. All right, that's all I got. Thank you very much. Got to go get ready for some more um, toddlering, I guess. to start making some changes let's change the way we eat let's change the way we live and let's change the way we treat each other you see the old way wasn't working so it's on us to do what we gotta do